Bee Therapy. Conversations about bees with Patrice Newell and Danny Lloyd Pritchard. Hi, Danny. Good Hi, to see Patrice. you. Nice to see you too. Now, our quiz question. How old is the earliest recorded bee fossil? It's a good question. I've got this really interesting research paper here. It's the assessment of pollen assemblages from the hives of TC for the presence of a threatened species of grevillea. Now, who wrote that? Let me look here. Danielle Lloyd Pritchard. Mmm. Danny, this oh. is your research paper I've been going over. You found and it. we have to have a talk about it. Well done, you. Thank you. Because it's really, really interesting. So give us the full title because it is quite a mouthful. <laughs> the full title is The Assessment of Pollen Assemblages from the Hives of Tetragonula Carbonaria for the Presence of the Threatened Species Grevillea parviflora, subspecies parviflora. Right. Now. It's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but it is exciting. Let's go back to the beginning here and what made you, what triggered you to want to do this research? I've always been fascinated with pollen and bees and I'd recently read a paper from Brazil where they were showing they could create a species list from a forest area by looking at the pollen that they identified inside the honey from native bees. And it just triggered something in my, I guess, imagination where I thought, well, we could do a similar thing in Australia because we have native bees. And particularly in the area where we live, there's a fairly healthy population of the native stingless bee. You referred to it as TC, Tetragonula carbonaria. And my thoughts were based on that research in Brazil and knowing that in Lake Macquarie of New South Wales, there was particular interest by the local council on this threatened species of grevillea, and there's only small patches of this plant. So how big is it? Oh, it grows up to about a metre in height, maybe a little bit what taller. What colour are the flowers? They're white. They're a grevillea, like a little spider grevillea, very similar to another endemic grevillea from this area, which is pink, which is grevillea sericea, which po people are probably more commonly, uh, well, they're more used to seeing. Thank you. <laughs> They'd be used to seeing that one because it exists in the bushland, more widespread, and you can buy it from nurseries. This one's not available in nurseries. And because it is threatened, obviously, you're not allowed to go and propagate it yourself. So the local council was developing a management plan for this plant. And I thought if I can assist them by identifying any new information about this plant, that's going to help with the long-term survival of the species in Lake Macquarie, which is the area in which I live. For those that don't know Lake Macquarie, this is a really big lake, really, with lots of inlets. Mm. It's got a lot of towns, significant towns that, that probably many people would know, like Toronto, Wanji, Wanji, Dora Creek runs into it. It's also got a power station there, Vales Point Power Station. Mm. You know, that's a power station that's been there since 1979. Every now and then we think it's going to close down and then it doesn't, yeah. There's also uh, some mining activity quite close and underneath the lake. Yes, and... 
Belmont is at the southern point. So you've got Newcastle and then you come down to Belmont and then there's an isthmus, a bridge, mm. or the mouth of the lake mm. that goes out and Swansea is there yes. as well. Yes. So, and it, it probably doesn't feel big until you. I've been sailing on Lake Macquarie, so I remember thinking, "Oh my heavens above!" There's just inlet after inlet. Yeah, yeah. I'm it's currently huge. in the process of kayaking around Lake Macquarie in sections, and it's over 180 kilometres. There you go. So they, that's the shoreline. So this is Lake Macquarie Council that was trying to get a measure on the this threatened species. Yes. So they didn't know what the pollinator was or is of this species. And when I put a proposal to them to use native stingless bees to assess the presence or not of this threatened species in the bushland, they were quite interested. Interested because not only it's a native species of bee and a threatened species of plant, but here's some active research in Lake Macquarie using bees. Yes. So I started the process. And and what I did is I actually purchased already housed stingless beehives. So they were in the little boxes, which made it easy for me to move them around and place them in positions which are in known sites of the grevillea. I timed it perfectly to when the flowers were out and I spent hours and hours watching the flowers, observing what pollinators visited the, hour, uh, the flowers during the day, even at night time. And then at the end of the flowering period, I took the hives away. I extracted some honey and some propolis from the hives. Now, this was a whole process, and I knew exactly what the bees had put in the hives from the day that I located them in, in those positions. So I knew that it was definitely new honey and new propolis, and I analysed it for the pollen. So then I had to take my specimens down to Canberra, our capital city. Down to ANU. Down to the Australian National University, who just happens to have a fabulous dedicated laboratory for analysing pollen. And that's called palynology, by the way, the science, the science of studying pollen. And they also house Australia's reference collection of pollen samples extracted from soils, from honey, and just from plants in general. So I was able to spend some time there with the scientists. I learnt the various technical techniques. Mm. It's quite tedious. It's quite toxic. You definitely need dedicated equipment and laboratories to do this. You have to make sure you're not introducing any external pollens from the air. So it's all like a negative vacuum inside this laboratory and it's all very clean. So you've got four hives, you've then extracted, and then you've gone down and analysed it at, at ANU. Yes, yes. And I also had a reference sample so because they are threatened species, I needed to get a scientist that held a license that gave them permission to go out and sample the, the flowers for me. So I needed a fresh pollen sample from around the hives from that particular plant. So I knew what I was looking at was as close as possible to that species. So it's, there's always an element of doubt, but we had to be almost 100% sure that when I looked at the pollen that I could identify the Grevillea parviflora, subspecies parviflora, from the other Grevilleas or other types of pollens that were also out in that time frame of analysis. Very complex. Okay, let's get down to the pollen analysis that you had. The honey samples you said were unsuccessful in detecting the presence of Grevillea pollen. That's right. I didn't find any in the honey samples, but I did find it in the propolis because bees will actively forage for resins from plants as well as the pollen and 
these little TCs are known to forage from grevilleas, and grevilleas are one of the top 10 plants for attracting native, native bees in Australia. So we knew that there was a high chance that they were going to visit these flowers. I unfortunately didn't see any of their activity on the flowers at my observation times, but I did find what appeared to be the grevillea pollen in the propolis. Well done. Mm. There was something else that was actually a little bit exciting. In fact, almost more exciting than finding the pollen. That just confirmed that, yes, you can use bees or native bees to do some plant sampling for you. They became the plant ecologists out in the field doing the work, and I just took a little sample from their hive. When I was observing, there was at one point, there was a lot of honeybees visiting these grevilleas as well. But at one site in particular, there was a brown potter wasp that came in, and as it was extracting some nectar, it sort of it was touching the flower and curled over. The back of its head made contact with the pollen presenter, the anther, and it was dusted with the pollen. That was the only site I witnessed that insect visiting the flowers, and that was the only site out of the four that set seed. Interesting. Nice correlation. Mm-hmm. Mm. And did you take a photo? We captured a photo of that. Oh, well, we'll have to My share. My husband <laughs> captured that photo, I must say. Everybody helped me with field work. <laughs> I needed lots of eyes and camera. Oh, I know, lonely nights, huh? Otherwise, lonely days. <sighs> lots of mosquitoes. <laughs> <laughs> Funny. Well, well done. Thank you. So that is available and published in the Journal of Pollination Ecology, 18, 2016, page 23 to 30. Now, we... Um, have been talking a lot, Danny, about mead. And I asked you what happened to the mead one day that we were together a few years ago now. And I thought we might just start our little chit chat about mead by revisiting that remarkable day. So let me just set the scene here. Because I'd been saying to Danny, oh, we've got to have a mead day, we've got to have, you know, get together. So Danny is a great organiser and she organised a group of people to go to a friend's place to make mead, talk mead. And the person that was a mutual friend of ours called Alec Roberts, who brought along mead recipes and they were in Latin. <laughs> and so we all gathered around and started the day with Latin, of course, no one except Alec could read it. And we had all this guessing stuff. Do you think that means time? Does that mean clones? <laughs> he is a very unusual person. Uh, and we did decipher these ancient recipes. It was absolutely fun and amazing because mead is alcoholic drink made out of honey, but it's a lot more than that because it usually all the recipes, it, it's not just honey. No. Lots of other things are added to it. it. It can contain lots of herbs and spices and fruits. And Alec Roberts, I must say, is a champion mead maker. He's won many awards and he is renowned amongst the medieval societies of Australia for his fantastic skill at making mead and possibly drinking it. And I can assure you, the mead that we made on that day, I have not consumed. It's still in the safekeeping of Alec because good meads can take tens of years to mature to the perfect flavour and he mustn't be happy with it yet because he's still not sharing it with us. Okay, let's get down to what we actually then did that day. We mm -hmm. got the honey, 
-hmm. the water, mm -hmm. the orange rind, mm -hmm. orange peel. This was the other one. So we made two meads that day. We we made the traditional ancient mead recipe with the Latin interpret our interpretation of the Latin ingredients, which was things like thyme and oh, bay leaf. It was incredible collection of herbs and spices. Not sweet. No, it's, it's going to be a dry mead and it was, he made a tea first with all of the spices and the herbs and then that tea was put into this large 25 litre bucket and into that he added at the appropriate amounts and temperatures, everything was weighed, weighed measured, you know, sanitised, it was very scientific and very precise and so it's the water and the yeast and the honey, of course, and it had to be a particular type of honey. I had to go and find about 10 kilos of lucerne honey, so it was very light because he said that doesn't have an overpowering flavour. So he wanted a very light honey to make this mead. And then I demonstrated my mead-making technique based on what I believe would be quite a traditional method and almost the bucket scientist in me was coming out to do this. I did a little bit of cleaning of the jar. I only made five litres, so it was a, a Demijohn or a carboy five-litre glass container with that thin neck so that you can put a airlock in top of it, on top of it. And I threw in... It is a special um, It's thing a fermenting that, jar, yeah, yeah, fermenting bottle. It's designed for this purpose, particularly I like it for mead. You can make other alcoholic beverages in it. We just go with mead. I used my own honey. I used... Roughly two kilos. I just poured it straight in this jar, which was relatively clean. And on top of that, I put the rind of an orange and the flesh of an orange. I threw in a cinnamon stick. I threw in a bit of ginger. I threw in a little bit of nutmeg, a little bit of cloves, added the yeast. Was it heated? Nah. Then I just added water up to about the five litre mark. And then I passed it around and got everybody to shake it. Mm. And I added the yeast. And the yeast I used was bread yeast. Alec used proper mead yeast with a number. Mine was just bread yeast, Australian bread yeast. And we shook it up, gave it a good stir. Then I just leave it alone, put the airlock in and left it for about three months. By the end of it, it was cleared and we could drink it. <laughs> is nice that, young mead. Is that what we drank at the birthday party? I make it often and it's usually the first mead that most mead makers will try. But the thing that I think is amazing when we've been together and had different mead sampling is... The diversity of the flavours mm. with everybody's mead. Yeah, you never get the same batch of honey and you're never going to be able to replicate the same batch of mead. And it all depends on the timing of the year, you know, the temperature that the mead's been sitting out while it's been fermenting. Maybe that's why mead's never really taken off because they've never been able to you know, consolidate something Possibly. into one flavour. It's starting to make a, a bit of a resurgence and certainly huge in America – I think they've got over 500 metres last time I looked. But in Australia, it, it is just starting to become this boutique craft brewing I felt activity. like we were somehow in the hills of Europe, in, <laughs> in a valley like in Keeping the Bees, say, where, where we're making a medicinal herbal aperitivo. Mm. You know, it was just herbs, spices, honey, fermenting. Well, Nutrition. It, yeah. it felt very nutritious to me. Well, it's a very ancient drink. It was one of the first, if not the first, alcoholic drink consumed by humans and it was revered by royalty and it was medicinal. In fact, when the Black Plague was going on, it was safer to drink mead than it was to drink the water. I think the other lesson in this story is when you make mead with your friends is you've got to keep on to them so that you can sample 
the mead. Well, must have words with Alec and say it's about time we at least did a sample. Thank you very I think much. You're right. And once you start making mead, especially if you're a beekeeper and you always have a surplus of honey or you've you've got some leftover jars that you just mix together, it's worth experimenting. Try it. Try making some fruit spiced meads or other herb spice meads. I, I've made some beautiful meads with mango, and I've made beautiful ginger and lemon meads and chai tea meads it's it's amazing what you can do and the longer you leave them the better they get have you been buying any queens lately in the 2021 season i have i needed to requeen a couple of hives and i i wanted to do another split to try and get another colony going so i I purchased three queens recently what about you yeah i did i bought two different places Mm -hmm. both arrived in the post one arrived well in an Australian Post extra case where I had success. The other was just in a little envelope like a Express Post. Mm. And that second lot, I don't know if it was the Queen or themselves or whether it was the postage, mm. but I one failed, didn't seem to take at all, uh, and, and I too did splits. Sometimes you can put a Queen in and go back two weeks later and you feel, oh, they just love... You know, the new queen, (laughs) whereas I don't have a feeling of that yet. But I didn't do any splits early in the season. I did my splits later in the season. And I think if you can be onto it, it's better to do it in the beginning because you can't always get queens. No. That's the problem. You, you. I delayed it because I wanted to get a particular one and I from a particular queen breeder okay. and there were none available. I know. Don't you just love that you can order a queen and it can be sent to you in the post? I've I've done both. These particular queens I purchased and went and collected directly from the queen bee breeder. So I went and visited her out on site and two out of the three have stuck. Unfortunately, almost the day after I introduced the queen to the new split, we had a week of constant rain and this colony was too weak, too small, too not small. enough store. And I couldn't get to them. I couldn't get to them in time. So sadly, they absconded and there were no sign of bees. Ten days after I'd introduced her, they, they were gone. The hive was empty. But the other two have succeeded and they're going quite well mm. and they're starting to build up their stores now. We've got a, a late flow in autumn, so I'm hopeful we'll get through winter fine. And I'm enjoying the nature of these bees. They do have a, a lovely temperament. So hopefully they'll be nice and productive and perfect for my backyard. Let's get back to our question. How old is the earliest recorded bee fossil? We've heard a bit about this and there was a little bit of debate around 100,000 years ago. uh, Sorry, 100 100 million (laughs) years ago. My goodness, we're talking ancient fossils here. 100 million years ago, they suspect the first bee fossil was formed and it was bees found in blocks of amber. But more recently, in the last 18 months, there was another discovery which has pretty much confirmed that timeline of 100 million years ago. And I think you've you've certainly read this article as well. Ichnologists discovered this. What is an ichnologist, (laughs) Patrice? The idea of um, fossils being the ones in amber 
the ones that we see in rock versus the trace fossils. Mm. So the tunnels, the remains, the what you can imagine lived there within fossilized mm. soils. Yes. That's what they study. Yes. So entire soils can be fossilized and that records the burrows of the insects or the animals. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they study the tracks and traces of vertebrates. Hence trace fossils. Trace fossils. Yeah. I Insect trace fossils, yes. Yeah, what an amazing science. Now, this research, the one that's given this extraordinary age to bees, was in Argentina. Yes. Down in the bottom in Patagonia. The other thing about Argentina, of course, because they think they're major beekeeping place, well, they are, hmm. uh, indicating they're those bees which were not the honeybee. No, they're a native a ground na- nesting a bee. A native ground nesting bee. Of which we have a lot in Australia too. They appear to be everywhere, these bees, this yeah. style of bee. That's right. It's incredible. So they in these fossilised sections of soil, they were able to find the cells, which is where the bees lay the eggs and create, I, I guess that's where the larvae pupates in these little cells, but the cells are connected by tunnels. And all of this was captured in the fossilised soil and it was around the same time as flowering plants. So it just confirmed that co-evolution of flowering plants with bees. But they talked about these nests were dug in soils originally that were formed out of volcanic ash. It's a place to go. It's fascinating. Down to Patagonia to look at (laughs) a fossil hub. For the bee lover. Mm, so this was, years. yeah, and before, really, they, they were talking about before the full development of plant life. Yes. Yes, bees know have been around for a long time. And they're still with us mm. at the moment. We have to look after them. Well, not just the European honeybee. No. But all, all the bees. other bees that we probably don't pay anywhere near attention to. Mm. Well, Danny... Good to see you again, as always, and I look forward to our next chat. Me too. See you then. 